What's up, Trace Church? How's everybody doing this morning? No, 10 o'clock. Come on now. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah. Can you hear that online? Uh, Pastor Aaron is not bringing the message this morning. I'm Trent. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Trace. If you're new here, I just would like to acknowledge I am funnier than Pastor Aaron. And Aaron, if you're watching online, I want that to be noted from our service transcripts this morning. I am also more handsome than Pastor Aaron. Anything else you can imagine, there is one thing he has that I don't have. He's got great hair. He really does have good hair. Uh, over the course of this weekend, we are celebrating men and women who have served in our armed forces, some who gave all, all who gave some. And so I wanna take a second. At Trace, we have a culture of honor. And I wanna take a second. If you have served in our armed forces in honor of Veterans Day, I would like you to stand. And Trace, let's blow the roof off this building, giving these men and women. Stand up if you served. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your willingness to serve the cause of freedom both here at home and across the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We have some real life heroes in our midst today, Trace, and I am just so honored to be able to celebrate each of you who have served. Wanna take care of two more housekeeping items. Um, my goal today is to really glorify God the Father and Christ the Son. I do have a second goal. My goal today was to show up as a huge fan of my favorite rock and roll band, the band Skillet. Anybody, any Skillet fans out there? So this is the first time I've had the opportunity to teach at Trace since we went and saw Skillet. They were in town. I got to meet the lead singer, John Cooper, coolest guy ever. Uh, if you've never heard the band, they're worth checking out. They are really rock solid Christians and John is true to form. He really loves Jesus. He really loves people and he really tries to live out his faith. The last thing before we get to the lesson is you will notice I am not wearing my wedding ring this morning. Kirsten and I are totally fine. And we're totally fine. So I moonlight as a mental health counselor. I'm a professor at Colorado Christian University in their graduate counseling program. And sometimes people fly in from out of state to do like intensive counseling with me, which is really a, an exercise in agony. I call it a character building opportunity. And so when people fly in from out of state, I take them on like uh, backpacking trips. And this is terrifying because I know nothing about mountaineering or rock climbing. <laughs> Um, but they don't know that I don't know anything about that. And as long as I project confidence, it seems like things have relatively been okay. I went on a trip a couple of weeks ago and I was rock climbing up this rock face. No rope. I mean, it was just really terrifying. There were like 70 mile an hour winds. There was ice. And I'm like, we're just doing this. We're putting our faith in Christ. We need this moment as men. We're, not, we're having a never quit, not giving up attitude. And I'm like making my way up this rock face and I slipped and fell and it could have been really bad, but I, I, my left hand reached out and grabbed a little outcropping of rock and I prevented myself from falling and getting into a really dangerous situation. And I didn't know it at the time, but so we finish another probably six hours of this hike and get to our destination, I take off my glove and my ring finger is swollen like three times the size that it normally is. And I had torn a ligament in my ring finger as I'm catching myself 
from this fall. And so uh, after I got back home, we had to cut my wedding ring off. And here's the bottom line, Trace Church. If you're not tearing ligaments for Jesus and have to have your wedding ring cut off, are you even a disciple? I mean, seriously. Um, I am super excited to continue our sermon series called Disciple Shift. And here's how we define disciple at Trace Church. A disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. A disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And let me just say that living as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, as a person who is a professional, supposedly trained at helping people live their best, healthiest, most satisfying lives, that the best, healthiest, most satisfying life you can live is as a fully devoted follower of our Lord and Savior Jesus. That is your calling in life. Some people are unsure what they're called to do in life. Your calling in life is to live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose for which you've been designed. Some of you will recognize the name of probably the most uh, uh, excellent example of a disciple in recent history, in my opinion, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was uh, a theologian and a preacher in Germany during World War II. And because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he was very outspoken regarding his opposition of the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people. And because of his unwavering faith in Christ and his unwavering opposition to the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned for two years and ultimately executed for his faith in Christ in opposition to the Nazi party. And a few years before he passed, Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And if you haven't read it, Trace, I would suggest putting it on the queue of your reading list and, and giving it a once over at some point in time in your life. It's a really great book on discipleship. But in the book, Bonhoeffer has this to say about discipleship. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's a really great way to understand discipleship as a willingness, a willingness to die to self day after week, after month, after year. But as those words are coming out of my mouth, which that sounds really good, we want to be really practical at Trace. And I think we should ask the question, how in the world do we actually live that out? And however you answer that question, how you die to self day by day is the process by which you become a disciple. The answer to that question is the process by which you become a disciple. And at Trace, we have looked in the New Testament and identified 10 steps you can take in your pathway to living as a more fully devoted follower of Jesus as a disciple. So I got a graphic on the screen with each of those 10 steps. So if you're new to Trace, these are 10 steps that you can take right here at Trace Church to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus. Today, I wanna to talk to you about two steps that are on this screen, giving to the mission and serving on a team, which means you showed up to the sermon on serving and money. And I told Aaron, I'm like, dude, are you really going to have me teach on this? I'm a counselor, man. I'm not an expert in money. And so I am going to teach you about this, but I want to I teach you about the underlying principle that inspires giving and serving. And here's the point of my lesson today. 
The heart of a disciple is a heart that treasures Jesus. The heart of a fully devoted follower of Christ is a heart that treasures Jesus. And what does Jesus have to say in the New Testament about a heart that treasures Jesus? It's a heart that gives and a heart that serves. You may be surprised to learn that right now, every single person in this audience and everybody watching online has something beating in, in their chests. It's your physical heart. This is a really magnificent creation. Your heart, 24 hours from now, will have beaten around 100,000 times. 24 hours from now, your heart will have pumped 2,000 gallons of blood through your blood vessels. And if that's not impressive enough, if you took your blood vessels and laid them out end on end, your blood vessels would stretch 60,000 miles. And your heart to beat has its own electrical charge. It's called an action potential. I'm not gonna get into electrophysiology today. We don't even have anywhere close to that kind of time. But if you were to take your heart's electrical signal and like add it all together over a 24 hour period, you could power an electric vehicle to drive for 20 miles. It's incredible. As you know, a healthy physical heart is vital to a healthy physical life. My point today is that a healthy spiritual heart is vital to a healthy spiritual life. And a healthy spiritual heart is a heart that treasures Jesus Christ, a heart that is wrapped up in and wrapped around Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is asked by a young man who's trying to follow the teaching of the law what the greatest commandment is. Most scholars say there are about 613 commandments in the Mosaic law. And a guy who's ambitious and young is like, Jesus, you're a great teacher of all these laws. Which one is the most important? And in Matthew 22, 37, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, as you can guess, Jesus here is not talking about a heart that pumps blood, but a heart that fully loves God. The New Testament was mostly written in Greek. And sometimes when we're trying to get an understanding of what uh, the Bible is saying, we look at the original languages. And so if you were to look at the Greek from Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, there are two words I want to point out. The word for love is, the Greek, is a form of the Greek word agape. And you've probably heard that before if you've spent much time in churches. Agape in Greek is the type of love we would say is unconditional love. A love that says, no matter what you give back to me, I'm giving everything I have to give to you, regardless of the benefit to me. That's unconditional love. The word in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 for heart is the Greek word cardia, cardia. And that means the affective center of your being, like the center of your essence, the center of yourself. And so what Jesus is saying is that the starting place for discipleship 
is to have a heart totally consumed with God, with the things of God. If you want to live as a disciple, your heart has to be totally, unconditionally committed to loving God, regardless of the benefit to you at the depths of the very fibers of your being. That's what he's saying there. That's the start of discipleship. And Trace Church, this is more easily said than done. And the Bible says that that's true. So if you were to look at the word heart in the Bible, if you just do a search on your app for the word heart on, on your electronic device, the word heart appears over 700 different times in the scriptures. And the first time it occurs is in Genesis chapter six and verse five. And this is bad news, right? So in Genesis chapter six and verse five, God is surveying the hearts of humankind. And here's what he notices. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Now that's a major problem if Jesus is saying our hearts have to be consumed with the things of God. Because God right here looks in the hearts of men at Gen in Genesis 6 and realizes that your heart and mine and the hearts of everybody who's come before us and the hearts of everyone who comes after us are tending toward wickedness. And you know the story in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve put in the garden. God says, eat of any tree. Don't eat the, of, the tree of, good, uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve wanders over to the tree. A serpent in the tree says, try some of this fruit. She takes a bite. She gives the fruit to Adam, who's with her. He takes a bite. God's like, what's this you've done? He curses them and kicks them out of the garden. Adam and Eve have a child. They have a son named Cain. They have a second son named Abel. God tells Cain and Abel to bring a sacrifice to him. Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to God. God approves of Abel's sacrifice, disapproves of Cain's. And Cain's like, I hate this guy. I'm going to kill him and kills his own brother. It takes a few chapters into the book of the story of humanity for one person to murder another person. And things don't really improve from there. In fact, they get worse. So bad that in Genesis 6, God sees the wickedness of man. He's like, I'm going to flood the whole earth, save one person, a man named Noah, in whom I've found righteousness. The point of this story is that your heart, if you do nothing with it, if you invest no energy and no effort and zero engagement in your spiritual heart, it will trend towards wickedness. The prophet Jeremiah puts it like this in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure. Now, I was alive when the AIDS epidemic started. And what was really scary about the AIDS epidemic is that it was an incurable illness. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying about the heart here. There is something in the heart that is so deceitful, it can't even be cured. I already told you I'm a mental health counselor. And this verse is tough for me because I make a living helping people get in touch with their heart, right? And find their inner world, and try to talk about what they find in there. And if they can make sense out of what's within, things in the outer world, I believe, can change. And in my approach, that's called insight, making like the subconscious inner world conscious. But there's a problem with that. 
the deeper people dig into their hearts, the more deception they uncover, the more brokenness they identify. And the truth that the Bible teaches us is that your heart cannot be trusted. When Jeremiah writes this verse, there is a king in Israel named Josiah. And Josiah was one of the best kings in the history of the Israelite kingdom. And one of the things that made him so great is like the Israelites had built all these idols to other gods and all these altars to offer sacrifices to other gods. And Josiah tears all that down and they celebrate Passover and it's probably the best Passover that they've ever had. But Jeremiah looks at the people and he realizes that they're really actually practicing this sort of superficial skin deep religiosity. And if you fast forward the tape to the time and life of Jesus, that's exactly what he notices in the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew chapter 18, verse five, 15, verse eight, excuse me, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says this, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Now, Jesus is actually quoting a prophet who was alive before Jeremiah. And when you consider the timeline trace, it makes you wonder, do things in life change all that much over time? In Jeremiah's day, back before Jeremiah and Isaiah's day, and all the way up to Jesus's day, people are living a lip service version of religion that is superficial and skin deep. And I would like to be so bold as to say the church in Western Christianity, capital C church, offers the same variety of religiosity practiced by the people Jesus was speaking to in this verse of scripture. I think we offer a place to hide, a place to pretend, a place to demonstrate a closeness to God with our lips, but to have a heart that is really far from God. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and I was a wayward son. And some of you will get that reference on the way home. But I grew up in church. And the pastor of the church, I attended a large church called Central Christian Church when I was a kid. And the pastor of the church was Reverend Joe Wright. And in January of 1996, Joe Wright was asked to pray for the Kansas Legislative Session's opening prayer. And the prayer he prayed really speaks to this idea of Christians living superficially with like this skin deep religiosity. And I wanna read you the prayer today. This is Pastor Joe Wright's prayer, opening the Kansas legislative session, January 23rd, 1996. Here's the prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. Lord, we know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. 
We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We have worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O oh God, know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. The next day, Joe Wright's secretary got two thousand calls for that prayer. Only about 5% of those were complaints. Why would people have been calling to applaud Pastor Joe Wright for this prayer? Because what he's saying sounds true. It is true that we have made excuses for the lip service version of Christianity all too easy to practice in churches today. King Solomon knew this. He was one of the first few kings in the nation of Israel, arguably the wisest man in history. And to caution us, he writes in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, trace church, guard your heart, because everything you do flows from it. Solomon is not talking about the part of your body that pumps blood. He's talking about the affective core of your being. And from that place comes everything you do. And what has to be in that place, at the deepest part of your innermost being, is a feature of you that absolutely treasures, treasures, God. And can we just be honest? Can I be honest at least and say that that is uncomfortable for me to have to live out on a daily basis? My heart wants to do wicked, evil stuff. 
I may be the only one in Trace Church today for whom that's true, but it definitely is true for me. You can ask my wife. And so I was thinking about this and I, I thought to myself, you know what? In my life, I have almost had to go through a grieving process to get a healthy spiritual heart. And in my field in mental health, there is a famous model of grief called the Kubler-Ross model of grief. And I adapted that today and I want to apply it to getting a spiritually healthy life rhythm. And when I'm talking about spiritual health, specifically, I'm talking about a heart that treasures God for the purposes of our lesson today. And a heart that treasures God, like I've already said, is a heart that gives and a heart that serves. And when I feel God just inspire me with that idea, the first thing I want to do is deny that that's what God's calling me to do. That's the first step in the Kubler-Ross model of grief. It's denial. And here's the way that sounds for me. The church doesn't need my time or my money. And in denial, which just so happens not to only be a river in Egypt, my wife was like, you cannot put that in the sermon. I'm like, watch, watch this. You know, denial for me is about pretense. It is pretending that something real is surreal. And that's the first thing that happens. I just want to pretend like the church doesn't really need my time, my service, or my giving, my money. And then the next thing that happens to me, which happens to lots of you, and God knows, don't you be lying in the house of God today, Trace. We get angry about it. That's the next step. In the Kubler-Ross model, we're angry. My heart says, you know, why the heck does the church need my time and money anyway? I mean, do these people not live on a budget? I have to, I have to pay bills. I mean, don't they know I got to work a job? And I'm mad about it. Right? And in, in psychology, what we know about anger is it's what's called a secondary emotion. And so when I'm working with somebody, I always ask when anger enters the room hey, I notice you're a little bit angry. I'm sorry for whatever I might've done or whatever was said that provoked anger. Can you back up for a second? And can you tell me what happened, what you felt right before anger? And you should try that in your own life. You should ask yourself when you're feeling angry, man, what, what happened right before I got angry? And I promise you'll find something. And most of the time, what people find is that anger is preceded by pain. Anger and pain seem to work synergistically so that the angry person feels justified in his or her anger. And often in a setting like this, when I'm talking about giving and I'm talking about serving, you get angry because your mind goes to a time you've been hurt in church by people talking about this. And part of our culture here at Trace is to be really direct with our people about church hurt. And I wanna say this to everybody in this auditorium and to those of you watching online, if you have ever been hurt by a church from the bottom of my heart, I am so incredibly sorry. I'm sorry. But I am unwilling to not teach God's truth because I care about your heart health way too much. And when Trent breaks past anger and I allow God to kind of heal my pain, I go to blame. And in my heart, this is what this sounds like, right? Like if everyone else would just do more, 
I still sound a little bit angry, but this is my blaming disposition. If everyone else would just do more, then the church wouldn't need so much of my time and my money. And in the same way anger and pain work kind of synergistically together in a toxic way, blame and selfishness work synergistically together in a toxic way. And, and when I'm blaming people in my life and when I'm blaming the church for God calling me to have a heart that treasures him by giving and serving, I'm selfishly trying to act as though it isn't my fault and it's everybody else's problem. And ask yourself if that's not true. Have you not told yourself, man, if all these people sitting on the sidelines would just get in the game, I wouldn't have to serve as much or give as much. But once we break, break through our blame, <clears throat> the next step in that heart health grieving process is depression. My heart sounds like this. Well, I, I don't have enough money or time as it is. And as a mental health person, I view depression as, as a, a feature of hopelessness. I think that's the core of depression. And I've shared this with, with you at Trace before, but it's important enough to share again. Hopelessness, in my view, is a pain-relieving adaptation to waking up every day hopeful something is going to happen and going to bed that night without that hope having been realized. Can you imagine what that's like? Of course you can because you've all lived that. Think about that thing that you woke up every day, hopeful would come to pass, but day after week, after month, after agonizing year, that thing didn't come to pass. If you're not crazy, you stop hoping for that thing to happen, to manage the pain of it not coming to pass every single day. Hopelessness in that case makes complete sense. What I'm trying to do in depression, because depression is a really overwhelming emotional state. I'm trying to disentangle thoughts and behavior from emotion when I'm working with depression. And that's, that's what God intends to do in your life if you're struggling with that. Help you get in touch with his truth. That's cognition or thought and help you live the way he's commanded you to live. That's behavior, and the Holy Spirit can empower that. And not dismiss your emotion, but disentangle it from your thoughts and behaviors. And he's very gentle. God's a gentleman. And if we come to him with an open mind and a willing heart, he can lead us through that to the last step of the process, which is acceptance. Here's what I say when I'm in this place, I, I, I need to give my time and my money way more than the church needs either from me. That's because my heart wants to keep everything for Trent. My heart wants to keep Trent comfortable. And my heart wants to find every excuse possible, including everything on this list and things not on this list, to justify its own wickedness. That's why today I want you to walk away with this singular idea that the heart of a disciple is a heart that treasures Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus's point in Matthew chapter six. 
So in verse 19, he's like, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust corrupt and thieves can break in and steal and destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust can't corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal and destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the idea that Jesus is talking about here is not complicated. Your heart is conditionable. That's what Jesus is teaching. And if left unbothered, your heart is going to tend towards wickedness and self-centeredness and is going to be in denial or angry about it or blame others or get depressed about it. But a heart that treasures Jesus Christ, a heart that is fully devoted to following Christ is a healthy heart that is totally satisfied. As I was thinking about this, you've probably heard this story. I was reminded of a, of a missionary named Jim Elliott. He and his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, in the mid-1950s, were called to the rainforests of Ecuador to minister to a tribe of people that had never uh, had anyone even visit them from the outside world, let alone hear the message of the gospel, the Wadani tribe. And on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries make contact with the Wadanis for the first time in history. And the Wadanis, who were terrified, executed Jim and the other missionaries who were with him. Really tragic story. And Jim's wife, Elizabeth, rather than recant and retract her commitment to missions work, she doubled down. She became one of the most outspoken proponents of missions work in history, Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot began combing through Jim Elliot's journals. And he wrote a sentence in, the journal that's, in a journal that's since become famous. And the sentence is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the crossroads staring you in the face today. Are you going to hoard up your time and service? Are you going to hoard up your money? Or are you going to surrender those things to God and develop a heart that really treasures God? I couldn't resist as I was thinking about this. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a treasure map. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to the church today. So would you guys put that? This is a treasure map. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. This is it. If you want to know what the next step in your Christian journey might be to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, I would like to suggest that it's giving sacrificially of your money and giving sacrificially of your service. And by service, I'm meaning time and action and engagement. Jesus says, when you do those things, your heart, the affective core of your being will treasure God and your life will be transformed. That's what I want for you today, Trace. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, may we be transformed men and women who live, in, who live in complete and total devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. God, you don't need our money and you don't need our time. 
but our wicked hearts desperately need to feel the discomfort of giving and serving sacrificially. And I pray that today we would make a commitment as a church to not be lip service Christians whose religion is skin deep, but to be Christians that genuinely treasure you. I ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen.